This is the current federal tax developments for the week of November the 28th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by your State Society of CPAs and by Kaplan Financial Education. This week, we're going to look at a few developments that took place. And again, it was the week of Thanksgiving, so we didn't have a lot coming out of the government this week, but we did have a couple of cases and one letter ruling we're going to talk about, mainly to look at areas that are kind of things we're just going to review. We're not really looking at these breaking a whole lot of new ground. We're going to review some issues brought up by each one. In the first case, we're going to look at a case of a taxpayer who received a damage award, and the taxpayer attempted to keep that from being part of their taxable income. And as we'll discover, didn't succeed in that. The damage award was found to not be for physical injuries, and we'll discuss why that was crucial, because that turned out to be the only kind of really stretch forward option the taxpayer had to try to get an exclusion in place for the award. We also want to review the fact that partnership language in LLC operating agreement actually was a revision to a prior agreement, ended up causing an S corporation to lose its status, requiring it to apply to the IRS for a private letter ruling regarding a waiver of an inadvertent termination of S status. So we'll talk about that what the problem was, why we see the problem quite often. Again, remind you about when that problem is most likely to become an issue for you, and then discuss you know, how you avoid from being in the position this taxpayer found themselves in. Finally, we're going to talk about a taxpayer who probably a lot of you can sympathize with, filed a claim for refund back a few months ago, hadn't heard from the IRS for three months, got impatient and decided to file suit in court. Well, most of us don't quite go that far. Unfortunately, as this taxpayer will discover, you actually have to give the IRS six months to respond. Failed to do so. So let's talk about, first case we're going to talk about here is the case of Tillman Kelly versus Commissioner, Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2022-111. This case came down on October, on November, I should say, the 21st. And it is a case that looked at Damages received from a taxpayer from an award for an employment problem. In this case, the taxpayer received $230,671 in damages from the taxpayer's former employer. Now, what had happened here was he had been project director of a federal grant that basically a university had sponsored. He reported directly to the dean at the university and the dean's executive assistant. Uh, A few months into his employment, he expressed concern to the U.S. Department of Education and the university's ethics office of certain grant funds being misappropriated. Uh, Basically, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, the university terminated his employment. He filed suit against the uh, university and the uh, supervisors in Illinois State Court, alleging they had retaliated against him for his complaints of misuse of funds. He indicated he was subjected to humiliation, isolation, harsher discipline, different and comparatively more negative terms and standards of employment of the university employees, denial of benefits, demotions, and ultimately termination. Specifically, he asserted that the dean threatened to do what he had to do in response to his ethics complaint, which, again, according to the complaint, consisted primarily of eliminating his job responsibilities culminating with his termination. Uh, he claimed that these violated the state's whistleblower protection and sought damages included but not limited to emotional distress and humiliation and lost income and benefits. Now, notably, the complaint did not allege any physical injuries, nor did he seek compensation for physical injuries in his complaint. Uh, 
they finally settled this court about seven years after it got started in 2017 under the terms of settlement agreement. The taxpayer received $230,671 in exchange for ending his suit. The settlement award provided that the damages were for alleged non-wage injuries as non-economic emotional distress damages. Now, of course, the catch becomes the taxpayer now decides, hey, I don't want to pay tax on this issue, right? So what happens was, even though a 1099 was issued by the employer to the taxpayer for $230,671, he failed to report this amount on his tax return. Obviously, with the 1099 being out there, 1099 ladies being, being out there, the IRS noticed the problem and eventually, you know, basically went after the taxpayer to say, hey, you owe us this money. Now, the basic rule is under Code Section 61, gross income includes uh, all income from whatever source derived unless there is some exception found under the Internal Revenue Code that would kick the amount out of income. In this case, the taxpayer ended up trying to argue that he would qualify under a method that does work for these types of expenses and or these types of awards, which is under IRC Section 104A2. One reason why you might have awards in a lawsuit and not have to pay tax on the amount awarded is if the amount of damages uh, received, you know, were basically on account of personal physical injuries or physical sickness. And the law provides, going on a little bit further, for purposes of that rule, emotional distress shall not be considered as a physical injury or physical sickness, right? Um, and also it will say, you know, if you're actually being reimbursed for medical care, right, in this case, right, uh, that's different. If it's deductible medical care you're being reimbursed, that wouldn't be taxable, even if it did relate to emotional distress. So if you were having to go counseling, whatever, related to that, even if it wasn't for a physical injury, if it's reimbursing you for care that you receive, then that's also going to be excludable. Now, the taxpayer attempted to claim that, you know, well, the, the, this was for a physical injury. Now, the interesting part was he had to kind of come into the issue of, well, what exactly happened to him that caused this to be considered a physical injury? And what he said was that, in essence, he claims that the retaliation claim was really rooted in a heated altercation between him and the uh, dean's associate, which resulted in a physical injury from the slamming of a door and that the settlement proceeds were meant to compensate him for that injury, right? Now, here we go to the basic rules that get involved in this. And this case does a pretty good job of outlining how to deal with this. A court first looks at the underlying agreement that settled the lawsuit to determine the nature of the payment. That's a starting point. Now, in many cases, this is going to lead nowhere because what you're going to have is a very broad claim, a very broad settlement that waives, you know, all claims for all reasons, whatever they might be. And there'll be a laundry list of various things that could have been asserted and no way of breaking down the award among the categories. In this case, though, we're going to discover that wasn't really the issue, but we'll keep going. If your agreement does not provide for that, then as a court note, you have to inquire as to what was the intent of the party paying. Not the recipient, not what the recipient believes they're receiving the claim for, but why did the payer make the payment? You know, was the payer motivated to get out of a potential award of damages 
uh, related to the physical injury or were they trying to deal with something else? And generally, you need to look at this by taking into account all facts and circumstances, including the amount paid, the allegations in the injured party's complaint, and the factual circumstances that led to the agreement. So looking at all of that and taking a look at all of the objective evidence we have, we then determine if, in fact, it appears the payor was trying to pay for physical injuries, and we can figure out how much that was or was it the whole award. In this case, the big problem was, as the court said, the actual uh, agreement didn't provide for this. The agreement said it was for emotional distress, period. Non-wage injuries consisting of non-economic emotional distress. The code makes it very clear that that's not a physical injury. You know, it's like that, that, that's bad language in there if you're going to try to get excluded. Right? You can't have it be for that sort of issue. Now, the court noted effectively that that would end the whole inquiry, right? We have the agreement uh, takes precedence over anything else. But the court also noted that even if the agreement had not specified in this fashion what the payment was for, the problem he's going to run into is the actual facts of the case didn't make sense in this regard either. The court found that he provided no real evidence. Uh, already noted that his complaint never alleged a physical injury. He never claimed a physical injury when he was listing why he should be compensated. He didn't say that that would be the compensation. The only time the physical injury ever appeared in the record on the actual uh, litigation that got in play uh, was in this particular case, it came down to a, I think it was, what was it uh, in, I believe it was when we were talking about, uh, let me see, I got to get this correct. I want to make sure we have this right. Right was in interrogatories in the state court action. In the context of a lengthy description of events and his complaints, he stated that he reported to the university an incident where the you know, dean's assistant slammed the door on him and injuring him. However, it noted he didn't identify the injury in response to the interrogatory asking for the base of damages you're entitled to be related to, nor does the record explain the precise nature or extent of his injuries from the door. In essence, if this was the key driving factor, there should have been more about it in his complaint. There should have been more about it in the interrogatories. It, it ju just appears this was a throwaway line. Right? It's there. Ultimately, the court found he had to include the entire $230,671 in income. That's not surprising. These cases tend to work out going against the taxpayers, you know, going against the person receiving the award. Uh, because most often the agreements are just not tied down enough to make it clear, unless you have a very, very, very good factual pattern. It just doesn't work. But keep that in mind. Now, why don't agreements provide that X dollars are going to be considered to be payments for physical injuries? A couple of reasons. Num number one, uh, most attorneys that negotiate these agreements are not really tax attorneys to begin with. They're not going to go down that path. Uh, number two, even if they understand that that kind of language in the agreement would simplify matters for the uh, for their client in excluding the amount from income, they you know the problem is trying to get that precise language in there adds one more thing to negotiations, and again, negotiations drag out. We don't get the settlement. The settlement gets blown. You know, all kinds of things can blow up because of that. So their idea is we got two hundred thirty thousand on the table. We're happy with that. We're not going to blow that trying to get a language in here that would allow Mr. Tillman Kelly to have excluded this from his income because he could end up with nothing.
And I think third, they sometimes, I've found that, that the council has sometimes seemed to believe that somehow a vague reference and just saying somehow, well, it was there somewhere, well, that'd be good enough. And unfortunately, when you negotiate with the IRS and when you're going to tax court, that's not going to be good enough, right? We got a much more technical court here. We don't have a jury trial where we can hopefully get the jurors to sympathize with the taxpayer. What we have here is essentially going to tax court to avoid paying any tax. We've got a judge who hears tax all day, technical background, and the law itself is relatively clear. So remember that whenever you get a client that has these lawsuit awards, uh, basically the default is it's going to be taxable unless you find a reason to exclude it. Primary reason to exclude it is obviously the physical injury rules of 104A2. Uh, also, it may be if it's a reimbursement of an expense incurred by the taxpayer or it's reimbursing the taxpayer for a decline in value of an asset. But again, that's something that needs to be clear from the agreement that this is being done. Now, obviously, if I'm suing somebody, let, let's say because of, you know, decline in value in my property, right, based on the fact that, you know, they did something to it and they're reimbursing me for that, yes, in theory, that, that's no problem. And that you're probably going to get in the agreement. But in too many cases, the idea is we get the agreements and nobody's even thought of the tax issue till after the fact, which, you know, you just got to tell the client in that case, it's going to be taxable. And you're honest with them, too. Even if they come in before the matter, you and the attorney will point out that, you know, if we try to push this, you may put the entire award at jeopardy. So do you want to get 230000 and pay the income tax on it or do you want to get nothing? And since the tax rates are less than 100 percent, Nothing's going to be significantly less than getting the 230000 and paying the income tax on it. Let's go ahead then and talk on to the next thing that happened. In this case, we're going to look at a problem that, that we see with S-corporations. And this is a problem that was resolved for this taxpayer in private letter ruling 2022-47004, issued on November the 25th. And the problem in this case is the pretty standard problem that we run into of we have a LLC that is electing to be treated as an S-corporation. Now, the private letter ruling tells us initially that an S-corporation was formed. It had two shareholders, and its, S its election was fine. It had no issues. We do not know for certain at this point if this was formed as a corporation uh, or formed as a state law corporation, which then made the S-election, or if it was formed as a limited liability company. But what we know is Whatever the governing document was, it could have been either because in many states you can essentially form a new LLC, merge the corporation into that and have the LLC be the surviving entity. Um, we know, though, that that original governing document had no problem. Now, the problem in this case becomes the rules found under Section 1361B1 and D here that in order for a corporation to be a S corporation, it can only have one class of stock. Now, the regulation 1.1361-1L1, uh, generally a corporation is going to have more than one class of stock. So to be deemed to have more than one class of stock if the stocks do not have identical rights uh, to distributions and liquidation proceeds. So that's the key test. Uh, now, the key neat thing to note about this, the IRS is just fine in the regulation with having different voting rights. So that's not a problem. 
Problem is, do you have different rights in that regard? And we do are concerned about the rights. The issue is not, it's not relevant whether there has never been a, you know, disproportionate distribution. It's not relevant if it's unlikely there would ever be a problem. The question is, are there any circumstances under which the governing documents would provide for or allow the issuance of these disproportionate distributions, that it would not be against governing documents? Because if the governing documents provide for any situation in which, you know, these two equity holders could end up with not identical rights per unit or a share of stock in distributions, then you don't have an S-corporation. And that's where the problem is going to arise. What happened in this case was they adopted a revision to the operating agreement. And that revision added partnership style language, which clearly becomes the 704B language related to the maintenance of capital accounts and the use of those capital accounts in liquidation. Now, for a partnership, that's generally what we want in the agreement. Because for a partnership, if we don't have that in our agreement, then the agreement will not necessarily be found to, in essence, the IRS has the right to ignore the allocations and do their own allocations, no matter what the operating agreement tells us. And that's based upon the basic rules that, you know, we're going to go in accordance with the partner's interest in the partnership, in the partnership determined under all facts and circumstances. And as was pointed out to me many years ago by an attorney uh, lecture that was speaking at the Oklahoma tax conference, Facts and circumstances always favor the IRS because it's always assumed their view of the facts and circumstances is the correct one. It's the taxpayer's burden to show that their view is the better one. So we want to stay out of that because it's going to be very difficult with this vague idea of facts and circumstances to determine what exactly qualifies as each partner's interest in their partnership interest. But the problem is because of that rule that governs liquidation, in order to have and remember, the 704B regulations are required to be in your agreement, or at least referenced to in your agreement, the maintenance of capital accounts and use of them in liquidation, is a requirement to have substantial economic effect for your allocations. Well, the problem is, of course, LLCs are used most often, if they have more than one owner, as partnerships. So a lot of boilerplate LLC language will automatically have the cross-reference in there to the 704B language. And the key problem here is that liquidation under 704B has a very reasonable possibility of mandating distributions that would not be on a, quote, per unit basis, right? And that, that's what we're looking for here. Is this a per unit distribution? Because we, we have to substitute some sort of unit to be equal to a stock interest, right? So each, we might have each percentage interest in capital might be considered to be a unit of stock. Just make that equivalent. So we'd have the same right for every percentage held. And that's where we're into problems. Now, not only did they amend it once and do this, and he didn't notice a problem, they amended it a second time and didn't notice a problem. However, eventually the problem gets noticed, right? But the problem was, and they, they, they did, they, they corrected it. And they got, you know, language in there that got this whole per unit requirement in play. But the problem was when they adopted that first agreement, that terminated their S status. 
Now, do I mean the IRS came in and said, oh, taxpayer, you know, sorry, you're a C Corp. No, I suspect the, in fact, because the PLR, I'm very certain the IRS has never noticed this issue. So now we're asked, well, you know, then why are we doing it? And I'll be honest, I've also said, I've never seen the IRS assert this issue. So once again, you're back to, well, so why are we, why, why are we going getting a PLR? Because you have to pay for it. We have to get all this done. In the real world, and this is what people tell me, in the real world, this isn't a problem. Well, here's where it is a problem. And when back at the same Oklahoma tax conference I was, did it for years, we had on there a speaker I've mentioned before, whose job was for a national then international accounting firm. She was in the DC office and essentially led the teams that were involved in doing due diligence studies on companies their clients were looking at acquiring uh, that happened to be S corporations prior to this. Because one thing you're going to find about large companies, especially large public companies, is they absolutely will not take on somebody else's problem. That's not what they're in the game to do. If they can push it off and get, they want the problem cleared before they come in. Now, you might say it's just theoretical. The IRS never asserts it. That's fine. But guess what? The IRS could assert it and we don't take on somebody else's problems. If we're, if we're paying you $40 million to buy your company, we are not going to say, ah, don't worry about that. That's no problem. Nah, fix it. And that's quite often where these fix-its come in. And the way I decided that very quickly when I was listening to her speak every year before I would get up and speak on another topic was that every time she would review the rulings and S's for the year, she always did the S update. Invariably, when she took a case like this, one of these, it would always end up being that they had been involved in the case. You know, so it's like, so clearly, you know, she was generating these at a rather consistent pit. You know, her group was just generating these private letter rulings because they were going in and saying, you got to get this fixed. And it was always for an acquisition. So in this case, yes, the IRS granted the relief and the IRS has the right to grant relief. They have the right to waive, in this case, an inadvertent termination. And since the IRS has that power, you can do it. But the bad news is, that you have to ask the IRS for this relief. And while the IRS is very likely to give it, when you do a private letter request, you have to pay for it. And that turns out to cost money. And not only that, but walking private letter requests through the IRS is, in many cases, a time-consuming process. And now here comes the problem. Again, since the CPA and the attorney for the company fouled this up and didn't notice the problem for years, uh, we're not going to let them do the private lettering request because they'll file that up too. That'll be the implication. Your client's going to want to go ahead and have the international firm prepare the request. And the problem is going to be they'll prepare the request. They will also, you know, the IRS will want the fee, which is in the five figures normally, arrange. And when the bills come due, the client is probably going to turn to the CPA and the attorney and say, you guys are paying this. And they're probably going to prevail if they raise an action in court. So be aware of this, you know, be very careful. Now, why do people use LLCs as S uh, entities? Some cases it's because of state law rules. That's true in Arizona. Arizona has a state law rule as a corporation. Every year we have to disclose, uh, you know, who are, who are more than 20% owners are. 
If, however, it's an LLC, you only disclose who was the owners when it was immediately after it was, immediately, immediately after it was formed. Get the right words out there. And never have to report the update. So the paranoid among us, you know, who don't want that out in public, my, my own take on it is I, people have nothing better to do to figure out, you know, who owns shares in my accounting firm. It's like you, you really got a boring life, man. But okay, you know, in any event, though, though, though the paranoid among us, you know, they, they go out and they want this set up. The problem is all too often, the, and you know, they've read online that you could do an S Corp as an LLC, but they haven't actually understood that this takes a special S Corporation operating agreement that, that has been drafted to make sure it always follows the one class of stock rule. If you just take a standard operating agreement, you know, kind of the one you get on the you know, download from the internet, which I always love to do that too, because who wants to pay an attorney, right, is their theory. Uh, that one's going to probably have the Senate 4B language in it. And this isn't a problem if you have only one owner. But the minute you omit the second owner, that's when you have two different classes of ownership interests out there. You've got the class for the original owner and you've got the class for the new guy. And that's where we have problems. Finally, this week, we're going to take a look at the case of Lofton versus United States. Right? This was filed in the U.S. Court of Claims, case number one colon two two. CV 01335, the opinion came down on November the 18th. In this case, the taxpayer filed a Form 1040X amended return asking for just over $5,000 back on May 18th of this year. Now, as many of you are probably aware, the IRS has never been exceedingly speedy at addressing uh, amended returns, and that got way worse during the pandemic. And they still really aren't back anywhere where they were before, which, as I would say before, it wasn't exactly fast. So, you know, th this person is sitting here. The IRS owes me five grand. Let's assume, we don't know for sure if it's correct or not, but let let's assume they really do owe this person five grand. You know, she's not happy. She didn't get paid. So on September 14th, she says, I'm done with this. I've given them nearly four, five months. I've given them nearly, you know, in this case, four months to take care of this and they can't do it. They owe me five grand. This is ridiculous. She files in the court of claims. I found it kind of unusual because it's a pro se case. It's like court of claims. Okay. I'm sure there's a reason why she's there, but it was just kind of odd that she went there instead of a local district court. In any event, it was filed on September 14th of 2022. Now the problem we're going to run into is uh, IRC section 6532A1. That provides a general rule, no suit or proceeding under section 7422 of the recovery of any internal revenue tax penalty or other sum shall, begin, shall be begun before the expiration of six months from the date of filing the claim required under such section unless the secretary renders a decision thereon within that time. Not after the expiration of two years from the date of mailing by certified mail register mail, etc., etc. So bottom line, you, you are required to file the administrative claim. You are required to wait six months. Only after waiting six months can you then take the claim to court. So if the IRS has been sitting on it for over six months, believe me, the pandemic, they were doing that a lot too. Uh, yes, you have the right to take that case to court. You can force it into court. Now, the reason why we most often don't is because assuming you would like to have legal counsel, and if you want to win your case, that's always helpful to have legal counsel in most of these cases. Uh, 
you're probably going to find it's going to be way more expensive to go to court than to just sit back, wait, knowing that the IRS is going to have to pay interest if they finally, you know, say your claim is good and that they will eventually get to it. Uh, obviously, if they sit, if they keep sitting on it and it's six years down the line, uh, then maybe you do haul them into court because they've clearly been sitting on it, hoping that you'll just go away and they can ignore it. So that's where we're at. Um, like I said, in this case, what was interesting, though, in this case, even somewhat amusing, you know, the court said it's very clear this is a straight jurisdictional matter. You filed the case before six months were up. We have no choice but to dismiss your case. What was more than somewhat ironic, though, was the actual date the case came out, remember, November 18th? Um, yeah, it was exactly six months. The dismissal occurred on the date that was exactly six months after she had filed the claim for refund. So as the court noted, she goes straight out now, goes straight over, refile the identical lawsuit with the, court, with the clerk of the court, and the court could now hear it. But she has to refile the original lawsuit. The original claim against the IRS is dismissed by the court because she didn't wait the six months. So one of those interesting things to learn. So like I said, this week, mainly a review of what happened, what's going on, and some review of some issues that you should have already been aware of, but we're you know, reminding you of how those things work. Well, this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week on November 22nd, 2022. As always, uh, you can check it. You can email me at edzollers at currentfelltaxdevelopments.com if you have a quick question. I am going, I am going to be on the road uh, th this week, so three days I'm going to actually be gone on the road. Uh, be back in on, so I'll do Monday I'll be in place, and Friday I'll be in the office. But uh, the rest, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, I am traveling to and then coming back from a conference. So that, that makes it a bit of fun. So we'll be involved there. So may have a little trouble answering, but you can still try. I also tend to monitor the uh, Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington. And I'll take a look on anything posted on Idaho's website regarding their questions. Uh, otherwise, we will see you here next week. See what happens when the IRS now is back in the office for the whole week. The courts are up for the week. We'll just see what else goes on and what happens. But we'll see you back here hopefully next week for more in the area of current federal tax developments.